Where else can you go to not only find the information on how to train your dog, but the best deals on training equipment as well? Standing Stone Supply has everything you need to create that next versatile champion from DT system electronics down to even emergency med kits to take with you on your hunting trips. If you need some help with your training program, then their step-by-step online course might be a great fit for you, making it a convenient one-stop shop for the knowledge as well as the gear to take your training to the next level. Hit up standingstonesupply.com and promo code GDIY will save you 10%. Being an upland hunter in the south nowadays unfortunately means a lot of travel to try and find birds for my dogs. This means it's even more important that my map scouting is reliable to justify the effort. This is where Onyx comes in. I can honestly say that Onyx directly impacts the level of success I find on my trips. Whether it's the private versus public land boundaries, the expanding number of unique layers and features by state, or the 3D mapping capabilities, my initial step in planning my hunting trip starts with Onyx. To know where you're going, you have to first know where you stand. Check out Onyx Hunt Maps and use code G. GDIY 20 at checkout to save 20%. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. The rule of thumb is every one mile an hour moves that scent band from the animal uh, 10 feet. So if you have a three mile an hour wind, that dog can be literally 30 feet away from the track and still be on it if he is on the scent band. One thing we all love to do with our dogs is hit the road and go on new adventures. In order for that to happen, we have to be able to safely and efficiently travel with our dogs. Dakota 283 is dedicated to building unparalleled pet protection and tailgate lifestyle products for you and your best friends. Their one-piece roto-molded kennels have many options such as the Hero Series for military-grade crates, T1 low-profile kennels that will fit truck beds with tonneau covers, and their most popular G3 Series that's available in any size you'll need. Dakota not only offers many different sizes and styles of kennels, they also offer products and accessories to help with food and water transport, truck bed storage, and even grooming stations. Have a new puppy and only want to buy one kennel instead of buying multiple ones as they grow? Look at the Forever Kennel Insert Divider that gives you the ability to buy a kennel now and adjust the size inside as needed. No matter what you need to get you on your next adventure with your dog, Dakota has it for you. Check them out now at Dakota283.com. Your new 283 lifestyle is just one click and free shipping away. We are back with another week of GDIY. Joe, welcome. What's going on, Nick? I, I'm not. <laughs> I'm not living the dream this week. No. You, what, what's going on over there? I just. I got some kind of sickness. I'm not going to say it's the um, the c word, but uh, the Roni man. Yeah, it came down got me. Roni. Got me <laughs> knocked out all this week. But you know what? How to do the intro with you. You know, that's what we do over here at GDIY. We pull through. We have commitments. We're going to make it happen, right? Doesn't matter if there's babies being born or (laughs) or anything like that. Yep. We're dedicated over here. That's right. (laughs) Well, we won't keep you too much longer since you feel like crap. But uh, this episode, it's killer, man. I've been wanting to do this episode for a while. It It was more so about finding the right guest. 
and working dogs for conservation. We did them very early on on a uh, spotlight episode. I contacted them because they do a lot of conservation efforts by training dogs to use their nose. I contacted them and said, look, who's a trainer that you guys use or recommend to talk to us about dog's nose work? Because I wanted to really hit hard how a dog's nose works and what impacts the nose. And Pete over at Working Dogs for Conservation, go check them out. Go listen to their Spotlight episode if you haven't, because what they do with the dogs is absolutely nuts from even just invasive grass seed in in the soil bank. Like it's it's crazy what they do. So I knew that they would be able to put me in contact with somebody that knew their stuff and they did. They put me in contact with Tom Brownlee. And he not only has been studying canine olfactory senses, but he's been teaching it as a college professor. He's been training it uh for canine tracking, all that stuff. So he's applied it in the field. He kind of has hands-on knowledge from all different aspects. And it it was just really a fun conversation and informative and educational to figure out what he says impacts the sense and how it pertains to how we hunt and train these dogs. Yeah. There's so many, you know, old wives tales and, and rumors and everything like that around Mm -hmm. a dog's nose. And this was a great episode to kind of put some of those to rest. Yeah. Uh, You know, and, and, and two, if I, it's been a while since I've uh, had to go to any type of class. Yeah. I haven't been in college for a while. <laughs> and, you know, this, bring bring your trapper keeper notebook, sharpen those pencils because there's, there's going to be some notes a, here. You had a trapper keeper in college? Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, well, I, was, I was lucky if I brought a backpack to my college classes. Oh, man. I was about to say, like, bro, like, trapper keepers were like the 90s. Like, you're not that old. <laughs> I, I, was a, I was a biology uh, major my first two years, so maybe... It, but uh, yeah, I mean, this is, I felt like I was back in uh, my biology class, yeah. you know, and, and just like listening and, and not to, uh, you know, not to push Patreon or anything like that. But if there was ever a podcast where you're like, man, this is kind of worth, I feel like I'm, I was editing the podcast <laughs> and I was like, I feel like I need to go and throw some money to Patreon because I feel like I'm getting a lot of information right paying, now. Paying for your education. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I didn't even have to take out a loan. <laughs> that's fantastic well you know that was going to get forgiven eventually anyway right yeah yeah sure yeah <laughs> well yeah man it, it really was i've had this on my list for a while and it was just about finding the uh the right guest so i appreciate pete over at working dogs for conservation again go check them out if you have if, if you really want a good example of of what dogs can do and, and how it can benefit us they're, they're a great organization and we did a spotlight with them i think it was it was about a year ago now they were one of the first spotlights we did so go check them out. And uh, mm-hmm. Joe, I'm going to go ahead and get out in front of you before you ask. I do have a training tip of the week. Oh, good. <laughs> I'm, I'm, Paul, I'm on the edge of my seat right now. Yeah. No. Uh, so Paul hit us up on Instagram and uh, he just threw out. So he, he does a lot with the Huntsmith method. Right. And so with that, you know, the, they're real big on the woe post, but mm-hmm. One thing that you don't hear a lot about on the Huntsmith method from a lot of people is really building up from an early age and and getting your pointing dogs comfortable of just standing in a spot, right? So you're not necessarily training woe, but you're you're taking the dog is on a lead or e-collar and you get them to shut off the pressure from the, either the lead or e-collar to where they stop moving and you just get them used to standing still. 
that that's all it is. It's kind of like you're teaching the action now to teach the verbal command later with the woe. But it, it's a great, it, it really is a good reminder to where you can just go in your backyard and start start laying the groundwork, plant that seed for eventually when you're going to need it. And so, you know, you're just asking the dog to stand there. And you can also do this with flushing dogs or retrievers to where you get them comfortable of just sitting there until they're released for long periods of time. It's okay for them to just stand there and that you're there to correct them, but you're not overlaying a command. You're just creating a behavior, getting them used to it, and then later on introducing the command on the plate. Yeah, that's a great tip that you can do anywhere, that you should be yep. doing everywhere too. Yep. So, Paul, appreciate that. Uh, it's a good drill that anybody can do in their backyards. And again, mm-hmm. just like that, anybody shoot us your tips of the week gundog at yourself at gmail.com or shoot us a message on facebook or instagram it really goes a long way and it doesn't have to be for everybody you know i'm sure some of my tips people are be like i'm not doing that or the one that paul just sent somebody's gonna say i'm not doing that okay that's fine throw out your training tips and tricks if you're the one saying right now i'm not gonna do that that's dumb okay well what do you think is smart come up with something better and tell us (laughs) there we go you tell them nick (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> hey, well, um, I always feel weird reading the reviews because I feel it's like, you know, our most self-grandizing thing that we do on this podcast is we basically yep. tell our listeners what our other listeners think about us. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, I'm only, pretty much. And I've only exactly read the and I've only read the really good reviews actually because I don't think we've ever had a bad review. Which I oh, then now is that just you me. Said that. Yeah, yeah. We're gonna get people who are just <laughs> just gonna do it for no reason. They're gonna change their five well, star. Well, well, since we've done it, it's been a great reminder. Everybody, thank you for going on. Our ratings and reviews have been growing every week. We're at like two thirty three right now. I, I would like to hit. I'm gonna challenge all the listeners out there. If you haven't done it, I want to hit two fifty by next week. You think we can do that? Hey, if we hit two fifty by next week, I say we go and grab uh, a review. Any review, it doesn't have to be from the last couple of weeks, but once we hit 250, I think we, we do a little giveaway. What are we giving away? I don't know. I, we got to figure that out. <laughs> I was about to say, we have not discussed this. I'm like, well, I, all right. Like, we'll, we'll have to figure out what we're giving away, but yeah, sure. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll figure it out. But leave your comment, and then uh, next week's episode, maybe we'll hit 250, and then we'll, we'll give away the, the mystery prize. It'll be good. We'll, we'll figure it out. If we hit 250, we have a timeline on this. 250 yeah. in one week. Yeah, that's a lot so, of reviews. But we'll, 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 <laughs> yeah. see, we'll see what that happens. Yeah, we'll see. I'm not, so I'm not doubting it. our listeners or anything. Yep. Now, hit us up with a review now, and then uh, let's get to the episode. Uh, so, really, I picked these from uh, uh, the name that shows up on the review. And this one's from the Gettysburg Dog Walker. Uh, <laughs> okay. He says, this is the best hunting dog podcast. Is easy to listen to personality sharing great information. I'm a professional pet dog trainer and I've learned a lot of tips and tricks from the guests they have on. Nice. Appreciate that. Nick, I would consider myself not a beginner, but someone who has probably a low level of knowledge when it comes to training. My training comes from this podcast. <laughs> okay. I just think it's awesome that someone like me who, you know, has kind of a glorified meat dog. Um, can listen to this podcast and, and find some useful stuff. And then we've got pro trainers and, you know, it, it runs from, you know, the newest person to this world to someone who's, you know, been doing this for 40 years can actually listen to this podcast. So yeah, we appreciate the feedback guys. 
Absolutely. And I'm glad Gettyberg uh, addressed that. And if you're still oh, listening, no. I, I had to I had to do it, man. It's been a while since I got a horrible pun in. Oh man, you've uh, been a dad for like what, like a month, and the yep. dad jokes are already flowing out. Yep. Well, Gettyberg Dog Walker, uh, if if you're listening, hit us up. Uh, we'll we'll get, drop a sticker in the mail for you, and yeah, uh, send us your address. Yeah, there, there you go. That's even better. Well, with that, me and Joe are just gonna go uh, pretend like we did not make these horrible jokes. But hope you guys enjoy this episode. It was a great one. I really enjoyed it. And uh, we'll see you back next week, guys. See you. We get asked all the time what the most important thing to consider is when training and living with a hunting dog. And they're often surprised when they hear us answer with proper nutrition. It's pretty obvious when you think about it, though. It doesn't matter how well the dog is trained if it doesn't have the right fuel. The saying garbage in, garbage out rings true in dog nutrition. Yukonuba's premium performance lineup goes beyond just protein and fat with a number of different formulas designed to fuel your dog's specific activity level while supporting their recovery and optimizing their nutrient delivery. The proof is in the pudding, or lack thereof, when you make the switch to Yukonuba. You'll see immediate results in your dog's energy level and drive. They have a formula for every type of dog from your hardest working dog in the field to your laziest retired dog on the couch. Head on over to yukanubasportingdog.com to find the right formula for your hunting partner. Make the switch today and let Yukonuba fuel your dog so you can focus on what you and your dog actually love to do, work. Picture this. You just finished a long day's hunt or a long day in the training field grooming your next champion. You've run through your entire string of dogs in anticipation for the next fall. You think the day's over. It's not, though. Your day's not over until you let that ugly dog hunt. No hunting or training session is complete without capping it off with one of the spirits from Ugly Dog Distillery. They're Michigan-raised and purebred handcrafted spirits. They have everything you need from vodka and gin to your more traditional after-hunt choice Kentucky bourbon. Head on over to UglyDogDistillery.com to check availability within your state. And if you have an upcoming event that's alcohol-friendly, then be sure to reach out to us and see if we can add another Ugly Dog to the lineup. We'll tell you right now, we aren't much on flavored whiskeys, but you have to try their peanut butter whiskey. Unlike other peanut butter whiskeys out there, Ugly Dogs is made with real Kentucky bourbon and not just grain alcohol with syrup. So after your next hunt or a long day of testing and you're trying to decide what to drink, reach for the bottle with Ruger, the German wire hair pointer on it. It was handcrafted by people just like us, dog people. Every adventure starts somewhere. Make sure yours includes an ugly dog at your side. Explore responsibly. All right, everybody. I am joined this week with Tom Brownlee out of Helena, Montana. Tom, how are you doing this evening? Good. Uh, you want to go ahead and just kind of introduce yourself and tell everybody what you do? Sure. I'm a adjunct professor at uh, Carroll College in the anthrozoology department. Um, I specialize in canine track. Uh, we have canine and equine. I do uh, some of the canine. I'm also a certified law enforcement canine instructor uh, through the American Society of Canine Trainers and certified nationwide. So that's pretty much the short version. Yeah. So you wear a few hats in the uh, canine world. Kind of tell us what's your everyday, what's your average day like? You know, are you working with dogs or are you just teaching about them? You know, walk us through your regular day. Right now, I am teaching a specialized class on uh, canine olfaction science, forensics, and the law. That class meets three times a week. The rest of the week, I'm retired and or helping 
previous students train dogs because a lot of them have gone into the profession. Awesome. Well, let's kind of just dive right on into uh, the course that you teach then. You know, you, you mentioned the olfaction. You know, let's start there. What 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 do you mean by olfaction? Is that just is that really just another word for how dogs' noses work? Pretty much. Yeah, except we, we approach it, of course, from a scientific angle. And uh, we like to base what we teach on university research. <coughs> Excuse me. But we like to know, especially for my course, in working dogs, you need to know exactly how this stuff works for court testimony purposes. If you're dealing with canine, if you're dealing with uh, human remains, if you're dealing with search and rescue, you need to know. Yeah. So how how in depth do you go into this to where you know like how dogs' noses actually physically work? I know you have a bunch of experience in how it relates to training and, and getting the dog to really see the world through their nose, but can you can you kind of summarize and break down how a dog's nose actually works for us? Sure. Uh, first thing probably uh, to put in your mind is VOCs, which is volatile organic compounds. Everything is composed of volatile organic compounds. It just depends on how much uh, of those that get emitted by that object or by that animal or by anything. So <clears throat> that's the key to everything, and especially if we get into tracking. Uh, so that being said, the only thing a dog is physiologically capable of smelling is an airborne molecule. If it isn't a gaseous molecule, they can't smell it. It's not physically possible. So, I'll try to give you the the Reader's Digest abridged version. <laughs> yeah. Uh, when a dog's just walking around being a dog, we call that general scenting capability. Uh, at that point in time, 5% of the air that he is taking in is actually getting sampled for scent. Only 5%. Now, when he detects something that he or recognizes something, that he thinks needs further investigation, they will go into what we call a rapid sniff mode. Anybody's been around a dog knows what I'm talking about. And it is verifiable by science and all that. Yeah. So uh, when that happens, air gets routed up and over the respiratory tracts. The whole nasal system is divided into two tracts. One's respiratory and one is uh, olfactory. So, like I said, at general sending capabilities, they're sampling 5% of the air going in. Once they go in this rapid sniff mode, they are sampling 12 to 13% of the air for odorants. And on top of that, you know, you more than doubled what gets sampled. They're also, that increases their uh, rate of respiration by three. So things start to progress almost geometrically as far as the dog being able to pick up odors. Uh, so that's the first thing that travels that whole uh, rapid sniff you've heard it with a dog some dogs noses even will make an audible click as they go through that what it is is what we call the alar fold in each nostril yeah and that is what actually routes the air up and over into the olfactory tract so with that you know you, you mentioned a couple things in there first off 
I, I'm kind of curious just for people listening and, and relating it back to ourselves. Uh, are we the same way in that we can only smell gaseous molecules and then also the percentage of the air that we're taking in? Is that kind of similar to us or do the dogs just take in more scent than us? Good question, because actually when the dog goes into rapid sniff mode, he is cycling air at four to seven hertz which is cycles per second. That's what's going in his nose. And you've heard it. It's just. <laughs> yeah. Now think about when you go to sniff something, you'll pick it up, put it to your nose and go. Ours is exactly one tenth of that. We have about 0.4 hertz per second. We're a whole lot slower. We also have uh, the olfactory sensory neurons that actually pick up the odor and molecules. We have 5 million of those. And an average, if there is such a thing, an average dog has 220 million. Mm. So that'll kind of give you a little idea of how much better at it <laughs> than us. Yeah. So, and, and you just mentioned something, average dog. You know, we, we know that certain breeds ge- genetically and, and just physiologically smell better than other breeds. But what about like dogs within the same breed? How much difference are there? You you mentioned average dog. Is it really uh, uh, an issue of they all can't smell equally, or maybe just one hasn't been exposed and learned to use its nose as much as the other? Can can you speak to that? Glad that you addressed that because it is a very common misconception that one dog will have a better nose than another. Uh, the well, we consider an average dog is a fifty pound dog with a basic traditional snout, okay? Mm-hmm. Little bitty dogs with a brachycephalic head like pugs and shih tzus, they, of course, will have less smelling gear. It's it's still remarkably better than a human, but it's, it's a whole lot less. Uh, then as far as one dog of a like kind being able to, you know, smell better than the next, not possible. Uh, the thing that determines how well they're going to hunt or for us, how well they're going to detect contraband is their drive level and your training. You have not made that scent, whatever you want to target on uh, salient to the dog and have not ramped him up because all the dogs, you guys are dealing with gun dogs and I deal with working dogs. They all have a high prey drive. Uh, you need to put that to work. Uh, it's actually easier for us because we have a different system of rewards for the dogs than, than for gun dogs. But that's what determines one dog being better than the next is how much drive he has for the job and how you have taken advantage of that with your training. Yeah. And I'm glad to hear that because, you know, there's a lot of testing sy- systems out there for these gun dogs, uh, s- such as NAVDA and NAVDA on their natural ability test for their pups. It's, it's not, how good the dog's nose is, it's use of nose. How does that dog use the nose? Because you can't really determine how good the dog's nose is, but you can determine, like you said, the drive of the dog, the motivation, and and the dog actually using its nose in the field. Yeah, and I, I use my own, well, she's gone now, but I had a, a dog that I taught uh, narcotic detection to with a border collie. It's not necessarily known for their, their olfactory ability. And to be point blank, I thought her nose was an ornament. She never used it for anything until I started her on narcotics. And then there was 
reward okay. involved. And to be quite blunt, she was as good as I've ever seen. So, wow. And it's all, it all comes out because, you know, we're taking advantage of that drive. Now, yeah, now she just, that, she just needed that motivation. That's really all it was. That, no, so they'll use it. Yep. Well, and, and real quick, you did mention that there were a couple factors that maybe made some breeds uh, have less olfactory capabilities than others. What are some factors that can increase the, the olfactory capabilities? You know, a lot of the hound dogs, they have longer nose. And then a lot of people say longer ears help help with scenting conditions. Is there any truth to that? Well, there's no verifiable evidence of that. It makes sense. You know, in the case of bloodhounds, it makes some sense when you know how air is, you know, the molecules are gathered up, but it has never been verified. Uh, the other thing that I've run into that we can't get verification on, like I said, the average dog, we figure, and it's probably conservative, has 220 million olfactory sensory neuron. I have read accounts of, in particular, beagles and Springer Spaniels having 300 million. Uh, I haven't been able to verify that, and it's a smaller dog than we're dealing with, which does not make sense. So I don't know. But you will, you've got gun dog guys know. Uh, the Springers in particular can be extremely high drive. The British use them all the time for contraband work. Oh, yeah. Because they're not intimidating, and they will work like crazy with that nose. So, yeah. Yeah. No, it makes sense. Well, um, is there anything else that you feel like we should really touch on on how the dogs work before we kind of get into different scenarios and, and how that impacts the dogs' uh, scenting capabilities kind of while we're in the field or in hunting scenarios? Is there is there anything kind of on the physical front that we didn't touch on? Like on the dog or in the environment? On the dog. On the dog. Uh, <clears throat> the only thing to probably bear in mind, two things to bear in mind in the field, on the dog, uh, when you, I talked about the rapid sniff mode. Okay. We've all seen a dog do that. We've all seen a dog pant Well, they use the same muscle groups for both. So when a dog is panting and they're too hot, it is physically impossible for them to be smelling at the same time. Uh, we have all seen them pant a few seconds and then start sniffing a few seconds. That's viable. But ordinarily speaking, when they're panting, you need to give them a little break uh, before you put them back to work. Uh, no, the I, other part I, of the equation for an environmental change, or not environment, but on the dog, is something I have already lost. Nope. Might have to come back to that as soon as it comes back into my little head. <laughs> not a problem, not a problem. I'm glad that you brought that up because that is a very, especially... I live down here in the South. I'm in Tennessee. And then while we're training in the summer, it is very quick uh, for these dogs to start panning, especially if they're not in the best of shape. And, and some people, you know, they just, they get frustrated because the dog's not acting right, quote unquote, around birds uh, because they can't smell the birds. They're, they're panting. And, and a lot of people don't recognize that while they're panting, they, they aren't smelling. And what you just said, they can stop panting, sniff for a couple seconds, but then they go back to panting. You know, picture that while we're running through the field trying to hunt when it's 90-something degrees out. It, while they may get in some scent and may get lucky and find that bird, it's it's you're asking a lot of that dog. Exactly. Yeah, because yeah. it's just not effective. 
for them to try to pick up scent when they're painting. Yeah. Well, and that, that's kind of a good headway into the environmental section because, you know, we just talked about the heat that can lead to painting and all that, but there's a lot of environmental factors when it comes to how we train, test and hunt these dogs that we do. Uh, you know, so I've, I've got a few written down. I'd like to just kind of go down the line with you and, and get your take on how it really impacts the dogs. And it, we can kind of continue on what we just touched on is the temperature. You know, we kind of touched on heat but also there's an element of cold too. How does the heat versus cold affect the dog's noses? This is a very good question. Uh, when that air goes into the dog's nose and hits the first uh, series of bones that do the sampling, which are called turbinates, part of that whole system in the nasal system is to warm that air sample that came in and to moisturize it. Because uh, both... You have to bear in mind, we're talking airborne molecule. The things that increase the molecular movement are heat and pressure. And molecules will cling to moisture. They don't bond with it, but they cling to it. So that's the whole idea behind humidifying and warming the air sample. So on a warm day, you don't have to do as much of that. And it's kind of a non-event. Cold day the dog's natural ability takes care of that for you by warming that air sample. It gets further warmed when it goes to the rear of the nasal cavity, which is the ethmo terminates, which is where most of the sampling goes on. Temperature-wise, unless it is frigid, frigid cold, it uh, doesn't seem to make a difference. So temperature, ultimately, at the end of the day, is not that big a deal. And so I, I'm wondering, you know, a lot of a lot of hunters and a lot of trainers, they'll sit there and say that, you know, there are different factors that affect on how, how well their dog uh, smells. And, you know, they do mention heat and cold, but I'm wondering, since you just said temperature doesn't affect it, if it's other things that really kind of come along with the heat and cold that are really affecting it, you know. But f- well, there is one, actually, with the heat. The heat does increase molecular movement. So if they are on a scent stream from an animal, for instance, it's going to dissipate faster in the heat. Heat is never your friend as far as the scent per se goes. And conversely speaking, it will seek out any areas that are cool, like shade and whatnot. So you will see the dog go off an obvious track on occasion, but he's not off of it. He's in the cool spot where the scent went. Okay. Okay. But it does, it's said heat and pressure increase molecular movement and that they're not your friend. Okay. So, so, so you're talking about in the, in the gaseous molecules that they smell, you're just saying when it gets hot, the gas molecules are naturally going to float on over into the shade, into the cooler area. They can't. Yeah. Otherwise they, they just plain dissipate. Okay. Is that is that kind of similar to uh, you know uh, big game hunters that they, they kind of pay attention a lot more to thermals and hunting thermals when they're dealing with uh, uh, deer and elk and so on and so forth? Is that yeah. kind of what you're getting into with this as far as the gas moving into cooler and hotter areas? Absolutely. Well, thermals are are, are convection currents uh, rather than just a sense stream moving. They, as you well know, the thermals will go up in the morning when the ground gets heated up again because molecular movement speeds up and hot air rises. Right. 
in the evening, cool air falls. So thermal reverses, it goes downhill. It's very important out here to us in the mountains. Yeah. Well, you follow that like crazy. So now uh, I was told very early on when I got into this world that if, especially if you're hunting the mountains, if you, if you're going early morning, start at the top and work your way down because that scent's going to be rising. And then conversely, if you're hunting in the afternoon, start lower and walk, walk up the mountain. And uh, it sets the dog up for success a little bit better. I was just going to go on, you know, straight from thermals into humidity. I'm curious because you said that part of the dog's nose function as it's breathing it in naturally moisturizes and humidifies the air. So when we're when we're out with our dogs and we and we think that we see the dogs not smelling as well because it's a high humidity day or conversely, like there's not enough humidity in the air during the winter, maybe. You know, how, how does that really affect if the dog's nose naturally does it on its own? All right. I was going to say the scent uh, molecules will cling to moisture. Humidity is your friend. The dog will breathe it in. He won't have to humidify it as much as normal. He'll be able to work a little longer, a little sharper under humid conditions. When it's dry, uh, not so much. So, uh, yeah, humidity is always a good thing. I know. A lot of your bird dog guys will tell you, you nice right after rain or a nice foggy morning, dog does real well. And, and that's part of the reason why. Yeah. It, it makes it easier for the dog. The scent, uh, like I said, it clings to the moisture. The moisture is in the air. You're not seeing any of the molecules, of course, but it's happening right in front of you. Right. No, make, makes, makes sense. Uh, move on to wind. You know, you hear all the, all the time, uh, it's, there's not enough wind. My dog's not smelling great. And then you'll hear it on the opposite way. It's too windy. You know, the wind is blowing too hard. What's that kind of sweet spot? What's, what, what's the minimum amount of wind and then what's too much wind? I couldn't tell you that part, but I can tell you what the the basic rule is. Uh, now you, you have to bear in mind, I come from a place where we track people not animal, mm-hmm. but it would protect as well. The rule of thumb is every one mile an hour moves that scent band from the animal uh, 10 feet. So if you have a three-mile-an-hour wind, that dog can be literally 30 feet away from the track and still be on it if he is on the scent band. Now, the other part of that, of course, is if that track has aged very long, uh, then that scent band is dissipated by the wind. But uh, if you're on a fresh one, like you've just flushed a bird and the dog goes after the singles or whatever, if it's on a fresh one, that's the rule of thumb. One mile an hour is 10 feet. So Awesome. I've never heard that rule, so I, I'm going to have to start paying attention to that, writing down wind direction and, and how hard it's blowing and see if there's any correlation to how far the dog points off the bird. Yeah, and, you know, birds, bear in mind, before you call me an idiot, <laughs> we're going to be different to find than people are. People will give a whole lot more scent yeah. from the ground up, and the bird, not necessarily. Mm. So, Well, so what What about green grass, though? I've been hearing that since I got started. Is the, If the grass is too green, the chlorophyll sucks that scent down on the ground. Is there any truth to that? You got I hope you're ready to take notes because I actually – Wrote down. Grass, when a dog is tracking something, like a big game animal, if they're doing 
for instance, what they call blood tracking doesn't necessarily involve yeah. blood. But grass, and when an animal passes, they they damage that vegetation, whether it's grass or not. Uh, and I mentioned VOCs earlier. There are anywhere from 10 to 100 VOCs in any kind of vegetation. Grasses contain two to 300. What happens when it gets damaged is that chloroplast starts to leak and is immediately attacked by bacteria. The bacterial VOCs, because they will emit VOC when they're consuming that damaged chloroplast. Uh, that's what the dogs are following for the most part, unless it's an animal that really leaves a lot of stink behind it. So <clears throat> those VOCs on a track, uh, for every, well, like I said, I'm, I'm tracking humans, but for every single human uh, and environmental VOC, there's 22 to 82 bacterial VOCs. Uh, and they, when the bacteria start to consume this damaged plant matter, it gives off, it's an umbrella term, uh, but it gives off what we call diaminobutane. And that's pretty much the thing that the dogs are keying in on, on a track, per se. And I'm like, it might be a little different for your birds, but if there's damaged vegetation, that's what's happened. But you have to bear in mind, uh, you know, canines across board have uh, evolved to determine where prey has been, where prey has eaten, uh, where they can find it. And that's how they do it, by the way, the environmental disturbance and the VOCs from the bacteria. Now, that's that's fascinating. So is there – I recently just did an episode with, with a main search and rescue guy, and he, he was explaining how water uh, can really change – the scent and, and how it flows. And there's really nothing to disturb the, the scent molecules in the air uh, because there, there's nothing for it to go around. It's just, it's just open. So, you know, you, we just talked about breaking grass and stuff like that, that can kind of disrupt some of the molecules. Is there anything like that in water, uh, you know, that would affect us if we're trying to do a duck search or, you know, a track through water or something like that? That's a good question because what happens in water Water's H2O. It is, the, the molecules are organized so that the O is up. The surface of water has got a layer of oxygen on it. Oxygen is what we consider a sticky molecule. Now, molecules won't bond to other molecules, but they will cling for a while, and they will cling to oxygen. So when there is scent in water, the best analogy I can give you, if you've ever seen underwater fuse burn, when it comes to the surface, the bubbles break and the smoke dissipates very gradually, uh, according to wind or, or current or both. That's exactly what the molecular movement does on the surface of the water. It'll be there, but it'll start to dissipate uh, depending on wind and, and current. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, all of this is fascinating because, I mean, it, it really is just like any type of hunting, especially in the dog world. You have these tailgate biologists, and you can sit there and debate, and one person swears something matters and the other person doesn't. So it's really interesting to get your take on it uh, that's, you know, actually uh, studied, and, and it's it's science. So, you know, it, it kind of clears some stuff up and questions in my head. Now I, I want to kind of touch into your – 
you're clearly knowledgeable on how the dog's noses work, but I want to touch on your experience with training the dogs with that knowledge. So, you know, what, what can we do as dog trainers to really bring that dog's drive and enthusiasm with that nose? Like we talked about, it's more about the drive and the use of nose. Uh, how, how can we early on with a puppy or we just got a new dog? How can we start to develop that, that practice and getting the dog working with its nose more? Hey, I was thinking about this. I knew you were going to ask that. <laughs> what we do with scent detection dogs, with tracking dogs that are tracking people, and that you don't really have the luxury of doing with a gun dog. And what we do is we get a, an interactive toy. You get a tug toy, you get a ball, something the dog loves to play with, with you on the other end, Okay. That's his reward. There's no treats. There's no nothing. That's the reward for a prey drive dog. And uh, we yank a dog around on that, give him his reward, tell him he's wonderful, you know, all that good stuff. Uh, and we have found through studies that we've done, if you do that for 30 seconds, that in, induces endorphins into the brain. Endorphins make you feel good. Dog's thinking, hey, this is fun. I'll remember this. Okay, that's for... The casual in-between training. When you're training something for the first time and you really want to make an impression, you do the same thing. We do the same. I don't know how you do it with a gun dog. Yeah. Same thing. Some tug time, heavy, heavy motivation and hard play and lots of tugging and lots of ball throwing and for about four or five minutes. And what that does is in, induce uh, dopamine into the brain. Now, dopamine takes a couple hours to wear off. The dopamine mimics meth and it mimics cocaine. So it is basically addictive. That's what gives the dogs that we use the big time drive. We'll do that for four or five minutes and literally park the dog, put him in his crate and park him. Let him think about it for one thing and don't let him get exposed to anything that he may relate to that high. He needs to relate only one thing to that high, and that's the scent you're training. Now, I don't know how you can do that with gun dogs. I've only had one gun dog, Brittany. I didn't do any of that stuff. She worked fine, but I never saw that dog ramped up the way we can ramp up a German Shepherd or a Malinois. <clears throat> and I don't know how you would do it because you've got retrieving dogs. You can't play tug with that duck when they bring it back. You know, that's that not going to work. So that just takes a little thought. But it, the thing I would be inclined to do is what I did with my dog is heavy, heavy praise. You tell them what a good dog they are, and you tell them exactly every time they do something right, and you make sure that they know you're loving it, you know, yeah. and, and they'll work harder for it. And I – uh, I have found whether it's the gun dog, whether it's the canine, if they do something wrong, especially when they're young and they're training, I do what I call a focused lack of reinforcement. I don't tell them no. I don't. I just literally ignore it, and we go on to the next thing. If the dog is getting no reinforcement from a behavior, you're not going to repeat it. It's pretty much that simple. Yep. No, it makes sense. I mean, just from the behavioral theory side of it, you know, again, reinforcement is what you do to try and make an action 
more likely to occur again in the future. So if you're not acknowledging it and you're not reinforcing it, all you're doing is making sure you're trying not to make it happen again in, in the future. And like you said, that really just comes from not acknowledging it. And the big, that's the big thing I've seen in all types of training, with pets, working dogs, gun dogs, is people, when the dog does something right, they start taking it for granted. You need to recognize it and you need to reward it. Right. They'll keep, like you said, you have to acknowledge it, let them know they're doing the right thing. And uh, boy, it, it pays big dividends. Yep. So, so I'm curious, you know, we, we have this video chat going on and I see some big game skulls on your wall behind you. Have you ever used the dogs that you've helped train for cadavers or, or humans? Have you ever taken any of your dogs out there on a big game track? Maybe. Uh, yeah. I'm not the same dog that I trained for canine. I had, again, here you go. It's a basic Montana cow dog, half border collie, half Australian shepherd. Yep. She hunted big game with me the whole time she was alive. Uh, and the way she did that, she stayed at heel. Uh, I can move her with hand signals so she didn't make any noise. Because it's not legal to have the dog chase game. Uh, but when something ran off, you know, after being wounded, that's when she came into play. Yeah. Uh, what they call blood tracking. Now, and I learned in the course of events, you don't need blood. Uh, you just need a wounded animal. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I used her for 10 years and she recovered. Oh, got 60 some animals that I can remember for us. Uh, so, and it's, it's actually, if the dog has some kind of drive and you have some kind of training, it's, uh, the analogy I use training a dog to track like that is like training a fish to swim. <laughs> Put them on the track and start taking notes because they know pretty much what they're doing. I love it. I love it. Just natural ability and genetics. So, so I'm curious, you just spiked my interest again on, on the terminology of blood track. You know, what, when we're tracking a big game, a shot, big game animal or any animal for that matter, what are they smelling? A lot of people say that they're smelling the blood molecules in the air, you know, the drops that come out and that's where the blood tracking comes. Not so much that they're following puddles or drops on the ground, but they're aerized. And then other people just swear that it's the foot scent, right? Uh, what, what's your take on that? Okay. Well, I know this, uh, if there is blood that helps, no doubt, but, I've been on a number of tracks where you didn't find a drop of blood for 200 yards. What they are tracking is a wounded animal. A wounded animal, again, you're talking about VOC. Wounded animal, again, think about how dogs evolve. will give off more epinephrine because they're scared and they don't know what's happening to them. Uh, they will have a metabolic acidosis. So a lot of the, the molecules that are coming off of them become acidic uh, to a degree, and an acidic molecule is easier for a dog to pick up. Mm. Uh, it's ever so slightly irritating for the, the nasal uh, business. It's so slight the dogs don't notice it, but it's, that's what they are after is that metabolic uh, acidosis, those molecules. There's an increase also of diaminopentane, which is a bacterial uh, Metabolic waste product uh, when you have dead or dying faunal tissue. And it starts right away. It starts at 0.3 seconds. So there's an increase in diaminopentane. 
There's an increase in epinephrine, which is a real hot scent for a dog. And uh, there's a metabolic acidosis going on. You, I don't know if you've done enough of it, but I, I have. And uh, I've seen the dog track. Well, the one that springs to mind instantly uh, was in Africa once. Somebody wounded a gemsbuck. I don't know if you've been to Africa, but yeah. <clears throat> we were. The whole place is tracked up like a barnyard. It is uh, It's 90 degrees outside, and we have a wiener dog as a tracking <laughs> dog. And off he goes on the track. And again, I'm not finding any sign. I don't see a hoof drag, and I don't see blood. I don't see anything, but I'm following the dog. Uh, and it's like 200 yards. Found a chip of bone. Well, that dude is on the right track. And sure enough, another 200 yards, and we were done. Uh, how he sorted that out from 100 other animals, I, I wish I could say, but that's basically it. It, it is a change. That one animal that's wounded is giving off a different scent. Yeah, uh, just tr- tr- trust the hunter with the longest nose, and and and, and kind of what you just said, how that one dog was able to zero in on one animal uh, out of all the other animals, how that was possible. It kind of it brought up another question in my in my head because I don't I don't know how familiar at all you are with the gun dog world, but you have a lot of people under the impression that if their dog hasn't ever smelled a species of bird before that they need to be exposed to it before they go hunting it. You know, you have a lot of people that they'll, they'll order quail wings or grouse wings or pheasant wings or something like that to put in front of their dog so that when they go hunting on their trip a month later, uh, they know what it smells like. Do you really think that really makes a difference to, to dogs by being able to smell certain species, or is a bird a bird? No. My impulse is, yeah, that makes a difference. Uh, from my background, we will, for instance, train drug dogs, train explosive dogs. We train drug on cocaine. Once a dog's got the idea of cocaine, we'll, we'll train him on heroin. Once he's got that, we'll train him on whatever's next, ecstasy or whatever. Uh, but we train the scents individually uh, so the dog can recognize them. Each one, like I said, VOCs, it all goes to VOCs. Everything, the bird, whether it's a pheasant, whether it's a duck, whether it's cocaine, whether it's methamphetamine, it has a set of VOCs that come off of it in a certain ratio to each other. That's what gives it its distinctive characteristic smell. A duck smells different than a pheasant, and you know it, so... You might as well let your dog know it. I got you. All right. So we mentioned don't let your dog's tongue lag uh, when it gets hot. Is there anything else as hunters and trainers that we can do that you would recommend in the field do with the dogs to make sure that they they stay at at peak condition for smelling while they're hunting? You know, clearly keeping them watered and keeping the tongue from falling out is the biggest one, but is there anything else that you would recommend? Keep them watered, keep them cool. Uh, keep them on a good diet and keep them on a good exercise regimen. A healthier dog plane works better. That's all, and especially uh, for the lab people, lab have a, a tendency to get fat if you give them <laughs> half a chance. And, uh, you don't want to give them half a chance. Yeah. It's that simple. I've, I've done labs in search and rescue and narcotics both, but they're nice, slim, trim dogs. And uh, 
I would watch that. Keep them, keep them on a good diet regimen. And your gun dog guys know this already, but when it's hunting season, when you're going to be hunting them more and more, pour on some more calories, pour on some more fat yep. for them. No, absolutely. So, Tom, I got to know, you know, you you teach, you train. I want to know if you have any good war stories from actually out in the field. You know, do you have that one story? You just mentioned one out in Africa with the wiener dog. I want to know, do you have that one big story of, you know, maybe it was a a human recovery or an animal recovery, something just what, what comes to mind first for you for a dog just really showing you what it's made of? The, the thing comes to mind at first, when I train a drug dog, for instance, I will take one gram, which is one twenty-eighth of an ounce of the narcotic, say cocaine. It goes in a little Ziploc bag, just like the dopers on the street use. That goes in another Ziploc bag. This is what most people consider to be airtight. That's just how we handle it. We don't do anything different. You hide that, dog finds it. Not a problem. But I will take that as kind of part of their final exam before I put them on the street. Uh, you take that double bag, one gram, I will put it in a uh, vacuum sealer, vacuum sealer, and I will put that inside a quart of oil, screw the lid on, put it in a vehicle, and the dog has to indicate on the outside of the vehicle that it's in there and go in and find it. And I have never had one not do that that's what they're yeah, it's of. unreal it's unreal i swear we're just scratching the surface on what these dogs are capable of it, yeah just along that same line is uh we have research from florida state university that shows the the lowest uh threshold of detection and they did this oddly enough with a rottweiler and a giant schnauzer these are not dogs noted for the sending ability they used that amyl acetate and they got the dogs down to 1.09 parts per trillion that the dog could do. Wow. Yeah, you can't no, wrap your head no. around that. No, you can't. <laughs> well, and it, I mean, they have dogs out there now, you know, detecting cancer and, and diabetes and stuff and, and patients. It's, it's, it's really kind of, like I said, I think we're just scratching the surface on what these dogs can do. I've trained diabetic yeah. dogs. And the cancer is a whole lot easier than hmm. you would think, too. And, and actually, the thing I found, uh, I just did this two years ago in a specialized class, and your your gun dog guys might be interested. Uh, student wanted to train a dog to shed hunt. All right? I'd never done it before, and it turned out to be a lot easier yeah. than I thought it was going to be. Dog just got on it right away. So. Well, real quick, I mean, touch on that because shed hunting, in my, in my experience, if you take a dog out there that knows how to how to use its nose, you can you can teach that dog to shed hunt really quick. And like you just said, it's pretty it's pretty simple. So, you know, it uh, walk us through how to do it real quick because I know you know it, it shouldn't take too long for you to describe that. No, the the way we started this dog is we got some antlers that had not been touched. They've been hanging in the garage literally for 10, 15 years. Got some antlers, did not touch them because you have uh, oily glands on your skin. Dogs will pick up on anything that a human has touched. So we did not touch them. We used metal tongs, which we sterilized, and we would throw the antlers and start a game of fetch with the dog. Okay, once the dog figured out that this is fun, uh, 
then we would, you know, just hide them just a little out of range and send the dog. And there again, we would hide them by throwing them because otherwise the dog will track you to that spot. Yeah. Okay. And, uh, and we worked out from there. Now, once we got uh, the idea into the dog's head that it needs to search and get these things and bring them back, then we started to handle them. Uh, we don't want the dog to key in on that human scent, touching them. That's how we train evidence dogs uh, for canine. So that was easy enough to figure out, too. What we did was got the antlers, which we had handled. We got a bunch of other junk, you name it, sticks, stones, you know, forks, plates, whatever, that you have touched and threw them all out there and sent the dog out to search. Sure enough, the dog dead bang on the antler because that one had the one common denominator scent, which was antler. Yep. And it, it just turned out to be real simple. And, and that one, for its little uh, final exam, I had a couple of two-inch spikes from a little baby whitetail and uh, took them out and threw them in the bushes and turned the dog loose. Nice. She got them both. Nice. Awesome. Well, Tom, I, I, I really appreciate you taking the time and, and coming on to share your knowledge and experience. Before I let you go, is there anything else that you'd like to touch on or promote or plug or anything like that? Well, I'm trying to think. The only thing I'd plug is, and I see it in the gun dog uh, business, there is has been for years a move toward positive reinforcement training. And I will plug that to the end. There you go. Uh, there's things I have seen done in the past, like force stretching. And, and no, that's not how you train a dog. We have neurological research that verifies positive reinforcement works. It sticks with them longer, works better. Do it, do it, do it. Dog is happy. I like everybody to leave the scene with wagon tails. So there you go. Well, good deal. Well, Tom, again, I appreciate it. Maybe we'll have to have you on again sometime and uh, talk more about dogs and some of your war stories because it fascinates me and, and I, just what these dogs can do. It's, it's beyond amazing. All right, sir. Well, I thank you. Awesome. You have a good one. Will do. Thank you for listening to GDIY. If you enjoy this podcast, please remember to take a moment to rate, review, and share with a friend. Also, be sure to follow us and our partners on Facebook and Instagram under Gundog It Yourself. If you really enjoy the podcast and would like to contribute even more to the future content, please check out our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Gundog It Yourself. Thanks again and happy hunting. Everyone seems to have the same questions or concerns when they start trying to decide which kennel to purchase for their vehicle. Perhaps it's time to stop asking all the questions and just design the perfect setup that meets your exact needs. B-Pro Kennel specializes in designing and fabricating custom premier dog boxes handcrafted right here in the USA from high-grade, lightweight aluminum. They'll get you set up with the size dimensions, lighting, storage, battery boxes with solar charging, and anything else you can dream of. Stop stressing over buying the wrong setup, just have to replace it again in a year. Go ahead and check out bprokennels.com and get exactly what you want. If you're considering changing your dog's food soon, then be sure to check out Yukonuba Pro Performance. Their science-backed formulas are designed to take your dog to the next level of performance. They also now have the new puppy formula to help your pup start strong and live active. When looking at all the different food options, remember Yukonuba to help power their ultimate performance. 
Hey, what's going on, everybody? It's Bob from Lone Ducks Gun Dog Chronicles podcast. I hope you just enjoyed the episode you just listened to. And if you did, I think you'll enjoy hopping on ours. We've got professional retriever trainers and upland bird dog trainers from across the country and world sharing their tips and tricks and great stories to help you and your dog get ready for the season. We'll see you there.